0: Your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Barnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies, and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Mr. Chad Robinson. How are you doing, sir?
1: It's new year, new movies, so I'm excited.
0: Right, that's right. I, if you can't tell, I'm still under the weather. If you were listening <laughs> to the year-end special, I sounded pretty close to death, but I'm, I'm coming back to life, but I'm not all the way there. Oh, reanimated.
1: Nice segue for the movie today, reanimation.
0: I know, I know. Um, and I'm excited today because uh, we got a first-time guest, and that always excites me, Mr. Nick Santa Maria from right down there in the sunny Florida. I got snow on the ground up here, so uh, send some sunshine on this us. How you doing, sir?
2: Believe me, I'd love to switch with you, actually. I'm I'm a winter guy. I love winter. It's my favorite season. I'm here on Hutchinson Island. I'm on an island in Florida. My backyard is the ocean.
0: Nick, tell the people at home a little bit. You are a history of show business teacher, right?
2: Yes, I do that. I'm an actor. I've been in show business since I'm 15. I've been a stand up comedian. I've been an improv comic. I've been a cruise ship comedian. I've traveled all over the world making people laugh. I have been on Broadway twice. Uh, I've worked with the likes of Jason Alexander, Martin Short, uh, Sally Struthers. Uh, I can go on and on and on. I'm also an author. I'm a playwright. I've had two shows produced in New York. I'm a published composer and lyricist, a published writer. And I have a book coming out on February 27th that I've co-written with uh, a former guest of yours, Matthew Conium.
0: That is an astounding resume, Nick. I mean, that's impressive. (laughs) I mean, all I have on my resume is 20 years ago, I was a Boy Scout Eagle Scout. That's that's it. That's, a, that's all I've got to go with here, man.
1: Yeah, but that resume is going to be a little bit longer now because it's... And I've worked with the guys at Retro Movie Roundtable. So yeah, that will definitely be...
2: That's right. I've already awesome. branded it into my brain.
1: I'm intimidated now.
2: you speak. so Speaking of intimidating,
0: what is your favorite Universal monster? Because this is going to feed into our show today, Nick.
2: You see, I, I break it down to my favorite and the scariest. My favorite is the Frankenstein monster. Play by boris karloff there's i think three almost perfect performances on film one is peter laurie in the german film m the other one is uh, charles lawton as the hunchback of notre dame from 1939 and the other one that one those are
1: wonderful picks yes
2: but the scariest is the wolfman the wolfman used to scare the hell out of me when i was a kid Definitely.
1: Rightfully so. And Chad? I am 1933's Invisible Man. That is my favorite of the universal spectrum, so big fan of that.
0: Okay. I like that one better than the Kevin Bacon Invisible Man, personally, so.
1: Yes, Hollow Man, yeah. Hollow Man 2 is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. He's all eaten away. Very good.
0: You stole my thunder there, Nick. I got a second your opinion there. Frankenstein's definitely, you know, the Karloff pick. There's my favorite as well. So
2: it breaks your heart. It just breaks your heart. It's a beautiful performance.
0: Now, what movie are we covering today, Chad?
1: We are doing the improperly named Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein from 1948.
0: The budget for this movie is 792 thousand dollars. It grosses 3.2 million dollars in the box office. Box office rankings. I don't have as good a data on this far back, but The number one movie that year is either Hamlet or The Snake Pit, depending on which source that you come across, so IMDB gives this movie a 7.3. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes like it a fair bit more at 89%, and the audience score is just a little bit behind it at 85%, and as far as distinctions go, this is a good one. In the year 2000, the AFI listed this as the number 56 movie on the top 100 years of laughs, so uh, top 100 comedies, number 56. This This is high praise we'll see if it lives up to it. Now, Nick, had you seen this one before? And what was your background with it? What was your first time with it? And what's it been like coming back to it now?
2: I was five years old when I first saw Lou Costello on, on the television screen. And at that moment, I knew what I was going to be with my life. I knew what I was going to do. And it's exactly what I did. And it was all thanks to that meeting with that little fat man. And as I was watching him, I felt like he was performing just for me. And as I'm watching him and I'm laughing and I'm looking around the room and other people are laughing, I'm thinking that this job is the most noble profession a person can have by making people feel good. And it just went <laughs> into my mind and it, it's been there ever since, and it's still there. So Abbott and Costello were very special to me from a very early age. When this movie came, came on, and I was, I'll say I probably saw it when I was probably six, maybe the first time, it the world stopped and it wasn't just me it was my two brothers my two older brothers as well when this movie came on the world stopped and you watched it and you savored it and you ate it up like it was the greatest meal for, uh, you're in the middle of paris eating the greatest meal that that was ever concocted and you know it was more special than the wizard of oz which was only shown once a year and yet, you know i hate to sound like an old man but that's what it was that's what we had we had it once a year with commercials so Abbot and Castell-Me Frankenstein was one of the movie events, uh, I'll say, of my entire childhood.
0: That's, that's high praise. Wow. As a six-year-old, were you scared? I mean, like the, like, had you been introduced to the other monsters at this point? Because six is kind of young to be dealing with the monsters, maybe.
2: Well, you have to understand, I grew up in New York, right? Which, which had the, mo- the best television ever. You know, just a few, three or four local channels, but they showed movies. So we had the Million Dollar Movie, which... Sh- Showed the movie like 36 times during the week. If you missed any part of our movie, we'll be showing it again in 10 minutes. It was that kind of a thing. I saw King Kong like 35 times by the time I was seven years old, and it was all in one week. They would show Son of Dracula, Son of Frankenstein, you know, some of the 1940s horror monster movies on Million Dollar Movie. So I was familiar. With uh, a lot of them. By the time I saw *Abenacostel* and Lee *Frankenstein*, you have to understand that I'm a monster kid. I, I don't know if you know that term. We're baby boomers who grew up loving these films, and knowing every detail about them, wanting every mo- a model kit monster model kit, a famous Monsters of Filmland magazine was a monthly thing. We used to wait at the candy store for it to be delivered. And the other passion was vintage comedy, Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, uh, the Marx Brothers, W.C. Fields. I mean, all the great classic comedians. So it was the perfect combination. It was great comedy. And great monsters what what more do you need and the venn diagram
0: for things that nick likes it is a complete circle with
2: nothing outside of the circle (laughs) that's exactly right (laughs)
1: yeah chad how about you had you done this one before i mean i wish i had as beautiful and as wonderful an answer as nick just had and i could wax poetic about this but i watched it during the pandemic that was the first time i had seen it it was part of a horror movie challenge i was doing for myself this comes up quite a bit and obviously, I don't put it in the scary horror movies, but it comes up as best horror movies. It is kind of horror adjacent, has a lot of horror icons in it. So, watched it two years ago, and I had a good time. I am far less familiar with Abbott and Costello's work, obviously. I know the who's on first, that whole bit. I'm, I'm a bit familiar with their shtick, but I haven't seen many of their movies. And they do have a series of these, so they go on with The Invisible Man, they go on with Boris Karloff, they have a a one-off with him as well. I just expected old-fashioned comedy and fun, and that's what this movie delivers in spades. Like There's nothing quite like it in the modern era. So it, it's fun to revisit comedy legends. We've gotten to do it a couple of times. We did the monkey business. That was fun. I, I love this podcast for getting the opportunity to revisit this stuff that I probably wouldn't come across or review.
2: Can I just say, that I just think that's great of you. That really is. To open up your mind like that uh, is a very rare thing for people who are, say, younger than I am. So bravo. So.
0: I'm not going to lie, when I gave that distinction of the AFI 2000, it came out for the funniest movies list. As Chad knows, I love comedy. It's my favorite genre. My dad loves it as well. And so, you know, we were limited to what was in a rental store at the time. So we would certainly pick up the titles that we could that were in the you know, previously viewed section. Obviously, there were lots of holes. In what we were out to see, my dad had seen many of them, so he had a head start on me, but this is one that dad said, I assure you, this is a great one, because he had seen it. It was one of the first ones we watched. I don't know why. It might've just been the time of year that it was that we had started, but I remember this was one of the very first ones that I watched with the mission of saying like, I'm gonna see these AFI movies. It set the bar pretty high, I'm not going to lie, because <laughs> I really enjoyed it. And it's funny, another one that we did, and I was probably in high school, and the next one we did was Broadcast News, and I remember was, I was not at the appropriate age to appreciate Broadcast News at that age, and I remember thinking, well, the pendulum swung back hard the other direction on this one, so. <laughs> Further <laughs> in has made me appreciate both of these movies in different ways, but Abbott and Costello... I have not ingested large doses of it. My uncle has had it on and around and had collections of it. He's a big fan. And I hear about what they had done even more than I had necessarily seen it. So I feel like if you've ever been told about what happened when you weren't there, but you feel like you may have experienced it, Abbott and Costello has been a lot like that for me. And it makes me really happy because it not only makes me happy in terms of what seeing it that they do, because it does bring great joy but it also makes me happy because it makes me think of the other people who are close to me who love it so much. So there's something very universal about this. You could show it to a young kid. It's clean, it's, and it's remarkably mm-hmm. funny. So Chad's right. Like it's, it's something that is in an era of comedy that we don't have right now. But I also sit there and say it kind of sucks that we've lost some of like this, this very quick, it's, it's a very quick-paced kind of humor, and it's very universal. And I think that mm-hmm. it, it, I think it does hold up really well. I had not seen any of the horror movie uh, background for this at the time I'd done it. I came to horror, and certainly classic horror, later. So all the references, I didn't know the, the star-studded cast that was in this. That only made it better
2: mm. later. Oh, God, yes. <laughs>
0: I, I didn't realize it was like the Avengers of horror movies, like where right. like, they were all coming together. So what a treat it
2: was. It was a first. You know what I mean? Yeah, that mixing comedy and horror like that was—I mean, they did it in the past with haunted houses and things like that, but never with monsters, you know, or the monsters. So this was a first.
1: I do appreciate you saying it was universal comedy, like.
2: Yeah, I love that. that too. I love unintended,
1: that too. unintended, Russell. Well done.
2: <laughs> You're so clever, Russell. Even when you don't know it.
1: <laughs> but we will
2: spoil this movie. You
0: don't want it spoiled for you. Do watch it. And come back, and we will be back after these messages. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you.
2: Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time?
0: Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too.
2: It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening.
0: All right, this is your final warning, and there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So, Chad, for those people who have not seen Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein since 1948, please refresh people's memories.
1: A House of Horrors wax museum has two mysterious crates said to contain Dracula's remains and Dr. Frankenstein's legendary monster. Two baggage clerks, Chick Young and Wilbur Gray, are placed in charge of the shipment. Wilbur is warned of the shipment by Larry Talbot, who unfortunately is transformed into a werewolf mid-conversation. So Wilbur dismisses the ill omens as just some kind of prank. When Wilbur reads Dracula's legend aloud, Dracula revives and sneaks out of his coffin. Chick refuses to believe Wilbur, who is eventually hypnotized. Dracula then reanimates the monster and leaves. Wilbur is invited to a masquerade ball by Dr. Sandra Mornay, who has seduced Wilbur in hopes of translating his simple brain into the monster. Wilbur brings Chick along to help with a balancing act of Wilbur's other date, who is insurance investigator Joan Raymond. Our team of hapless clerks bumble through the castle, eventually encountering Dracula, who Dr. Mornay is working for. Wilbur narrowly escapes an attempt to become a brain donor, and the pair flee the castle. The wolfman appears and Dracula off a balcony onto the rocks below. Frankenstein's monster is set ablaze in the final showdown, and Chicken Wilbur breathe a sigh of relief in their escape boat, happy to be alone until the voice of the invisible man startles them while he lights up a cigarette.
2: That, that voice, by the way, is Vincent Price.
0: The incomparable Vincent Price. Yes. Right off the bat before we get into it, the opening credits. I love the animation on this thing. This is just yes. so like I mean the it's very caricature kind of like looney tunes type animation with all the monsters walking across there. You've got music by Frank Skinner on here playing. Somehow maybe it's because I've returned to this Four or five times, and I've introduced it to other people who are like, I don't watch old movies. And then they, I, I can win, the, this is one you can win people over with, certainly at a certain time of year. I've got a smile on my face right away. And I think it's interesting, Nick, you mentioned before, we really hadn't seen, the audiences hadn't seen comedy and horror come together like this. Today, I think we get desensitized by a lot of things that are coming your way. And I think sometimes people forget how scary these monsters really were for a lot of people. When we cover 1931 Dracula, people were really frightened. This is supernatural stuff that's happening. It's being taken seriously, and it wasn't just a ploy or a plot.
2: For the first time, yeah.
0: And so people really are genuinely scared by this stuff, and it's been a big seller. It's been a big hit for people. And what do you think skewing it and introducing Abbott and Costello into that really did for audiences at the time?
2: Uh, Number one, the animation at the beginning. I reveal something quite surprising in our book. by the way, the name of our book is The the Annotated Aben and Costello, and we go through film by film. Matthew Konium and I split up their films, so I do half and he does half, and I get to do Aben and Costello Me Frankenstein. Some of the information I found out is quite surprising, and it will surprise you. I don't want to spoil it, because this is like one of the big reveals in our book. People for years have wondered who did the animation for that that title sequence, and I'm not going to reveal it here, but you'll have to read the book. That is a good tease. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, and I can't believe I just did that. I used to hate people that did that on talk shows. No, I'm sorry, you'll have to read the book. The, the other question was universal and theater owners. By the way, got letters from mothers because their children went to the movies expecting to see their favorites. You know, their Abbott and Costello in a typical Abbott and Costello movie. They screamed. They cried. They ran out of the theater. <laughs> there is a sequence in the movie where uh, Lou is asked by Larry Talbot, Lon Chaney Jr., to lock him in his room because he knew it was gonna be a full moon and he was gonna turn into a werewolf or the Wolfman. And so Lou locks him in and at one point realizes that he had left his suitcase in his apartment. So he was gonna take it back to right across the hall to Larry Talbot's apartment. And since Larry gave him the key and Larry wasn't answering the door, Lou lets himself in. What he doesn't know is that Talbot already has turned into the Wolfman and Lou is walking into his apartment (laughs) and is barely missing, getting killed at all these like really crucial moments. I know you remember the scene, uh, Russell. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when he leaves, he he almost goes back again because he takes an orange, remember, from the bowl on the desk. And when he's outside, he's deciding whether "Hmm, maybe he counted these. I should go back You know, and when I was a kid, I was biting my nails. I was like, "No, don't go back! Don't go back!" (laughs) So you can imagine—you can imagine these kids, you know, in 1948, who grew up watching these these two wonderful comedians, and all of a sudden they're in deadly peril, and not just deadly peril, but from monsters.
1: Yeah, he he parties a little too hard the next day. I think is what I think is what. This is an interesting one because we we talked about the critics, and the critics it seemed like didn't really appreciate this movie in its time they were booing this movie there there were a few positive reviews but i think this is the second highest grossing film in the frankenstein franchise
2: and it was number three at universal uh that year it was the third highest grossing film you mentioned reviews i have to disagree with you the major papers love this movie the major papers, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, some of the uh, San Francisco papers, Los Angeles papers. The only snotty review was Bosley Crowther, who was, you know, he was snotty when he was writing Mother's Day cards to his mother.
1: The line from Hollywood Reporter, they said, this puts the boo in boogeyman of Broadway. It's like, man, that's, that's harsh. And there were a couple others that I, I get. New York World Telegram saying hey, if you don't have a palette for Abbott and Costello, this film is going to be a painful experience, which I, I don't know that that's true. I feel like there's enough there. If you're not an Abbott and Costello fan, I haven't seen their their whole filmography, but I feel like this is different. Nikki would be the expert, but I, I don't think this is going to fit neatly as an Abbott and Costello film.
0: Well, it's an important revival for them because like their careers were maybe starting to faint a little bit. They were past their peak. This movie shot them back up in the spotlight. This gave them the gas to make it to the fifties to keep doing what they were doing.
2: They made it to number three at box office out of the top ten. And that's amazing. Especially for comedians. It's just amazing. You're right. They were they were starting to slip at the box office despite Making really good films, the films they made just before these, this one, they're they're wonderful, uh, but the audience was getting a little tired of the same you know kind of films, and then this was the big uh, you know I don't want to say jumping the shark really because that's sort of a negative connotation, but my my writing partner Matthew Conium says he's not a fan of this film, which I find interesting because in our book we went through a lot of film critics, film directors film historians, a lot of people, and we asked them to list their top 10 Abbott and Costello movies. And the winner, hands down, was Abbott and Costello Me Frankenstein. Matthew feels like it was the harbinger of turning them into a children's act, much like the Three Stooges became a children's act during the last uh, part of their careers. They became a kiddie act so they would meet monsters and all that stuff. But I think that's a little bit of a generalization because they made different kinds of films in between these monster films.
0: I think people's perceptions changed. I mean, as I mentioned before, some people view this content as tame by today's standards, and you'll get a lot of people like, oh, these, these films are boring, or they're dull, or they're not scary. These are things that are just thrown around, and it's not happening in Costello that did that. I mean, that's just times have changed. If anyway, I think it makes them fun in, in an endearing way to if if it's a remix to be able to make you continue to appreciate it or broaden its audience, I think that's I don't know. That's flattery to me. I mean, when Weird Al Yankovic goes and parodies a classic rock anthem or whatever, I don't think it cheapens the original. In a way it kind of helps it live on.
2: But to me, it's a it's a compliment. It's a compliment to the original. Yeah. If you're important enough to be parodied
0: yeah. yeah. Kirk Cobain said, I figure we kind of made it big when Weird Al did a parody yeah. of our song. Yeah.
2: definitely.
0: You've made it big enough, it's entered the popular zeitgeist enough where people know the actors, people know everything. Congratulations, you've arrived at a special place in people's hearts where this is, there's room for this.
2: Without a doubt, without a doubt. And that just makes me think of uh, the fact that Abbott and Costello were so popular during the 1940s that there actually was an imitation, Abbott and Costello that made like eight films for RKO. They were known as Brown and Carney, Wally Brown and Alan Carney. You know, one was the tall straight man, the other one was a short, fat, funny guy.
0: It does seem like a pretty good formula. I mean, their juxtaposition of like what they do, straight man, funny man. It seems like it's pretty tried and It's a formula that gets reduplicated.
2: I would say since ancient Greece. Yeah. (laughs) You know, seriously. And this is burlesque. Yeah. I tell people, when people ask me, why are Abbott and Costello important? I say, you know, just like we in school, in college, when you'd study like uh, Elizabethan poetry or Shakespeare or the Commedia dell'arte, you're studying different styles of theater. But just as important is burlesque comedy, which has almost completely disappeared, except for what Abbott and Costello have left us. They are the not only the best purveyors of that style of comedy, but they have preserved it. For generations to come, forever. And, you know, lately I've been watching on YouTube people watching Abbott and Costello. You know, that, that trend on YouTube lately? They kill every time. It doesn't matter how old the person is, how young the person is, they kill every time.
0: And it's a strange thing. People are sitting there going, like, burlesque. You mean, like, you know, the thing where, like, the ladies come out, like, with tassels on and, like, you know, stripping? <laughs> yes. Coopers, yeah. Like, they would do comedy acts on theater. Between strippers doing their thing, and this seems very strange, and like it doesn't go together at all today. But I mean, it, it is what they did, and he's right. It, it it was it was a certain brand of humor, and you know, it was interesting. Abbott and Costello was able to make it out of that into vaudeville.
2: Not many did. Exactly. Very 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 few did. I mean, Phil Silvers is one I can think of. Jackie Gleason, Red Skelton did did burlesque. But uh, only a couple made it to what you would call superstardom. Uh, Abbott and Costello teamed up in 1936. By 1938, they were on one of the most popular radio shows in America, the Kate Smith Hour. Uh, and they appeared to do a routine every week. And they became a sensation. Two years later, they were starring, uh, co-starring in a Broadway show, The Streets of Paris, with the great comedian Bobby Clark. Uh, then all of a sudden, movies started knocking. Now, now think about this. This is four years after they teamed up. And they were in burlesque, which is considered lowbrow. It's below vaudeville, you know?
0: And it's kind of serendipity that these two cross paths, right? They've like overlapped with each other, right? They weren't like an act initially. And if I'm not mistaken, Lou Costello washes out. Like he tries to make it in Hollywood, like as a stuntman, or like, you know, and like he's on his way back east with his tail tucked between his legs.
2: What happened was uh, Lou, when he was about 20 years old, 21 years old, he and a buddy hitchhiked across the country. Lou wanted to be in the movies. Charlie Chaplin was his hero. So here's a guy, he was once a boxer. He was a very successful boxer actually in in the amateur ranks. Um, A guy with all the confidence in the world. He was one of those little guys who had a giant confidence. So he makes it across country. He gets a job at MGM studios, but as a carpenter's assistant, Uh, eventually he becomes a stuntman and he doubles for other people. And then an Extra, he he does Extra work. He shows up in Laurel and Hardy's movie, Battle of the Century. He's right up front during a boxing scene. And I'm the person who discovered him there. He had this little relationship with Hollywood. It didn't last long. And then he decided to go home. So he's hitchhiking home. He's in, I think it was in St. Joe, Missouri. And he saw an ad in the paper. This burlesque company was looking for what they called a Dutch comic. Now, a Dutch comic was actually a German accent comic. Dutch is kind of stands in for Deutsch. So it would be that, oh, this must be the place, you know, all that stuff. And Lou auditioned and got the job. This was 1929. So he was 23 years old. That same year, he was already being singled out in reviews, people who were reviewing the burlesque shows. So he was already finished. (laughs) He was already there. He was ready-made. And Bud was in when Lou was a child, Bud was already in burlesque, and he became perhaps the most sought after straight man in burlesque. He knew every routine, he knew everything, he was meticulous. But his most uh, endearing thing to other comedians was that he was very rough with them. He would slap them, he would push them around, he would anything to get sympathy for the comedian. And Bud didn't mind doing that. That was his job. He knew what he had to do. So everybody wanted to work with Bud. Groucho Marx said he was the greatest straight man ever in history. And I agree with Groucho. There, nobody was better than Bud. So they teamed up later. They used to cross paths. They worked with other people. And one night, uh, Lou's um, partner, his straight man, didn't uh, uh, was ill, actually. And Bud stepped in, and magic was made.
0: Lightning. Lightning in a bottle. Oh, lightning in a bottle. And that's amazing, too, that so when they go on to do radio, they you know mm-hmm. who's, who, who's on first is probably the first thing that comes to your mind when you say Evan and Costello. I mean, the sketch is like in Cooperstown, like in, in the Baseball Hall voted, of Fame. Voted
2: the greatest comedy sketch of all time.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it is hilarious.
2: It's all fun. It's
0: amazing. Yeah, <laughs> so that gets them to Universal, and they're huge. They're massive stars.
2: They get into a movie that they're not stars of. They hire them to, to be the comedy relief in a movie called One Night in the Tropics. And it's a terrible movie, but they stand out. And so Universal took a chance with them on a very low budget army comedy called Buck Privates. It went into the stratosphere. It just took off like, no, everybody's head was spinning. They couldn't believe it. So Abbott and Costello were the biggest thing in the country.
0: And they, they become <laughs> machines, Nick, like, how do they make this much content? I'm aware that they have worked together and they've like fine tuned a certain brand of humor, but nobody can crank out movies this fast anymore. It's the next
2: question. You know, it's funny. Milton Berle had a joke on the radio. <laughs> he said, things are slow in Hollywood, putting custom movie all day. So, <laughs> but it's true. They, they were pretty much leading up to their overexposure. And that was part of the problem by the time they got to Alvin and Me Frankenstein. Not only were they making new movies, they were reissuing their, their older movies. Then they were making movies at MGM on the side. And then later on, they were making independent movies. So, and then you couldn't turn on the TV or the radio without hearing them. So, you know, by the time Alvin and Me Frankenstein came along, they needed that, that kind of change.
0: So like when Netflix paid Adam Sandler all that money, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Like, like kind of like when people like there's another Adam Sandler movie. I don't, I have a lot of them already.
2: (laughs) It's true. But you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of outside factors uh, that changed them through the years. Some were ego driven. Lou at one point had their salary switched that he got 60% and Bud got 40. I talk about this in the book because I'm on Lou's side on this one. Lou worked. 10 times harder than Bud did.
0: I actually read that it was typical the straight man get the 60 and the the funny guy get the 40. And that just seems wrong to me. Like if you told me like David Spade's going to get 60% and Chris Farley's going to get
2: 40%, I'd say you're crazy. But you have to understand that in burlesque in those days, it was more typical to have a good comedian than it was to have a good straight man. So they were the more valuable commodity.
0: It's like when you need to band the drummer, the drummer's the guy who's gonna get picked up, you know, like it's, you know, who actually has there the drum go. set, you know, gets in the band,
2: yeah. There, there you go. <laughs> but you know, it's, and it's, it's interesting because if you go back and look at the call sheets on the movies, Lou works three times harder than Bud. He's on the set three times as much. How many times does Bud go, all right, I'm gonna go find you a job. And he walks off and Lou does routines with other people.
0: Now, Chad, as a fresh perspective, again, somebody who's not as inundated into the Abbott and Costello realm, coming to it, what are some of the things that make you sit there and go like, this is funny?
1: I value the straight man, so I, I would probably be on the opposite side of the argument. I I love the funny people, but I think I tend towards the straight man, that dry sense of humor, the dead panning reactions. That's just, that's kind of my wheelhouse, so I, I like that play off of each other, and I like the sarcasm within all of this of and no back talk. I've got just two words to say to you. What's that? Harry Beck. Eh, like stuff like that. I've, I've just.
2: My argument about that. And I, I bring this up in the book when there are the burlesque routines, Bud is worth his weight in gold and nobody did them better. Nobody. And that's where his, his re- reputation was made as far as acting, as far as carrying the story, as far as who you sympathize with and all that other stuff, then it all falls on Lou. And it's a lot more than just playing straight man to a bunch of routines. Bud is funny in a way, but when you watch them work live on the Colgate Comedy Hour, you could see him try to get these jokes out and the audience doesn't quite know how to take him. He's not naturally funny. He's a great responder. When When he responds to Lou, like you just said, You know, like, talk sense, or uh, the man's dead, Lou! You know, stuff like that. He's terrific. He's just wonderful.
0: Lou does scared really well.
2: Like, I mean... Brooks said he did the best scare take in history.
0: Yeah, so that's a natural fit for this. I know they're doing other things, but I mean, watching him be afraid just cracks me up.
1: Yeah, I'm not trying to take away from Lou Costello at all. It's not an either-or, but for me, I tend to... Sympathize more with the straight man and that routine. I, I like the setup, the person that tees it up for the funny man to knock it out of the park. So, if you're asking me from a personal comedy perspective, I like the Bud Abbott's and I, I like the sarcasm and a little bit of the meanness that he can bring to that.
2: Are you a Mo Howard fan? Uh, yes. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs>
0: I think another funny thing that is even different than like we got the monsters, we got Abbott and Costello, but there's something very, very, very funny at a very simple level of this short, dopey guy who doesn't have a great job, he's not rich, and there's this woman who's completely out of his league, who's relatively unexplanatory. Like there's there's no explain, explanation why she's into him. And she's not just into him, like she's very like doting. She's And she's gorgeous. And she's gorgeous. Watching that puzzle bud is really really funny. Yes. And then it and then it completely goes to another stratosphere when all of a sudden he goes to the door for a kiss from his girlfriend who just departed and then there's another also very attractive woman who just comes in and just gives him a kiss like as an introduction and she's all over him too. And then Bud's just like sitting there going like am I on crazy pills? Like this is right. like I mean watching this guy who seemingly has not doesn't have he's it going for him
2: wind. he takes lou over to the window to look at him in the light <laughs> yeah <she's laughs> beautiful. Sure he's not seeing something you know that he's missing
1: that's a great introduction she's beautiful i'm joan raymond she's joan raymond
2: that is just so great
0: i mean what a simple thing that's something that you know you it's pretty funny even now even if you were to do something like that that's a brilliant thing and they get a lot of mileage out of that so it's interesting how many things they're actually plugging and doing at the same time going on a date with two women at the same time seemingly unknowingly of each other is like one of those things where like fred flintstone has to go back and forth being in two places at (laughs) once or what i mean this is 1948 this is just very creative even Mm -hmm. at a very simple level the number of inputs they have with going into this at a big picture work, well, that's an excellent framework for them to hang their sketches on because they the movie kind of has sketches built into it.
2: Actually, the only sketches they do are the candle bit, Yep, Dracula's coffin, which is based on an old burlesque routine, but they brought it up to date because in the old routine in Hold That Ghost, they did the moving candle bit and it was floating on its own. In this one, it was Dracula inside the coffin Causing, every time you tried to open it, the candle would slide. So it actually made more sense. And Lou's responses are just hilarious. <laughs> Trying to whistle, you know, and he can't get it out. It's hilarious. It's just hilarious. But anyway, the other one I remember is very specific. It's it's actually just a couple of jokes when they go to the island with the two dates. And Bud's saying, come on, you know, you got to share your dates. And but Lou says, wait a minute, what about those girls we went out with last week? And he goes, you had the you had the best looking one. And he goes, yours had teeth. And he goes, yours had teeth too. And Lou says, oh, you saw that tooth? Mine had so much bridge work. Every time I kissed her, I had to pay toll. Right. So that was really <laughs> that was really it as far as their burlesque routines.
0: They may not have been pre-established routines, but like when he's like, I need a witness. You know, like I'm a witness. Is oh, like like I one. mean, right. like Absolutely. this just feels like a sketch. Like this feels like something you could even see now on Saturday Night Live and something. And so. Their microstructure within that bigger framework, for me, that comedy just works very, very well for me.
2: You know that Lou Costello hated the script, and so mm-hmm. did Bud, actually. He went into the front office and said, my baby daughter could write a better script than this. So anyway, they did it. And after the preview in Inglewood at the Academy Theater in the summer of 1948, his, Lou's mother came out, walked up to the producer who was there with Lou, and said, this is the funniest movie they ever made. And Lou had to kind of swallow it because he, he didn't like it till the day he died. It just wasn't his thing.
0: I'll be honest with you. When you have somebody as talented as Abbott and Costello are, I mean, plot somewhat becomes less important for people who can drive the vehicle so well. What the vehicle yeah. is may matter less. I think brilliant, like Jim Carrey, when he was younger, was one of these things where if you plug mm-hmm. somebody else in his movies, they're not very good. Yeah. Like the script might not be very good, but Jim no. is very funny. The, or, or Steve Martin.
2: I call them star comedies. Yeah. They're star comedy. You know, yeah, you go see a chaplain, you know, yeah. you go see a Steve Martin, you know, basically, yeah. And yeah. Abbott and Costello had that, they had 38 of those. In fact, <laughs> it's a lot of movies.
0: It's interesting to me, though, we brought back Bella Lugosi, we covered him in the 1931 Dracula episode back in Halloween time, and he hasn't done this for 29 years. And this is only his second time being Dracula, he's such an icon for doing it, but he hasn't really been doing it. And it's funny that he comes to do it here in a whole another atmosphere. And I read that in that one, he was so serious, he was in character all the time and so serious. Mm -hmm. And to see him be on this set was an interesting thing to what it was it like for these actors, Nick, to just watch them turn their worlds upside down to now this is funny. You're not making a scary movie. You're making a funny movie.
2: Yeah. Right. But you have to understand that Lugosi made movies like this before. He worked with the Ritz brothers in 1939 in the, a movie called The Gorilla. He worked with W.C. Fields in 1933 in International House. He worked with Joey Brown in okay. a movie called Broadmine. But this is only the second time he played the Count. And he was 66 years old when he made this film. This was also the last big budget picture he made. Right after this, he went. Phew right down the tubes, making Ed Wood movies and all that stuff. So this was the last. This was his last hurrah. And to tell you the truth, I think he just hits it out of the park. He's incredible. He's
0: delightful because Chad, how would you say his performance changes? Because you've just you've watched both of them the last six months here. How do you feel like Legosi's approach changes in this atmosphere?
1: He's definitely a lot more tongue in cheek, especially when he gets to dress up as the Lord of the castle. He's giving these threatening sentences that kind of sound nice and he just has the sly smile about him but i did want to touch on his impression of this type of movie because there was a guy his name was bobby barber and he's employed kind of as like the court gesture he's a fluffer he goes through and makes sure everyone has their energy up practical jokes deliberately blows takes yeah yeah so Bella Lugosi is enjoying Bobby Barber until it's done to him. And Barber is going down the stairs as Lugosi's being all solemn, sinister, whatnot, in character. And he's being imitated during every movement. And everyone bursts into laughter, and Bella Lugosi, in just that. Hungarian thick accent. We should not be playing while we are working. And he storms off the set. So he couldn't take a joke at his expense, but he thought it was great fun for everybody else.
2: He was very serious about his acting, Chad. He was very, very serious about his work. The outtakes survive. And you could see that one. You could watch that one. And you turn around and like for a split second, you just see Lugosi lose it. And it's just hilarious. Uh, (laughs) Poor little Bobby Barber. (laughs) But the Outtakes in this movie, there's one in particular where the Frankenstein monster is sitting there. He's kind of dormant. And Lou accidentally sits down on his lap, thinking it's a chair. And he puts his arms down on the arms of the chair and he looks down and he sees that he's got two hands on and it's the Frankenstein monster's hand. And Lou is doing all this pantomime, you know, being scared, wondering why he has another hand. And Glenn, Glenn Strange, as the monster, loses it. And he just starts laughing and he turns around and says to the director, Charlie Barton, I'm sorry, Charlie, I can't. And then it cuts <laughs> off. But if you want to see the Frankenstein monster lose it, it's hilarious. It's just hilarious.
0: That, that scene is funny. Like He's like pounding the hand of Frankenstein, realizing he doesn't have any sensation. I mean, it's
2: hilarious. Slowly it's processing,
0: loose. very slowly processing. Yeah. <laughs> you know?
2: One of the things he does best, I I don't think he doesn't do it in this movie, but it's one of the things that he's just brilliant at is that he'll start laughing and the laugh slowly turns into a cry. And by the end, he's like hysterically crying. It's just so beautifully done. It's just so seamless. And this scene is kind of like that. He sits down and he just starts jamming, you know, and without saying a word. And he's got us in on it. He's almost breaking the fourth wall. Chad,
0: would you rather have Boris Karloff do this? Like, he didn't want to do it. He felt like it was going to make cheapen his monster. But would you rather have Karloff?
1: Karloff was very nice about this film. He did help promote it. The official excuse is, hey, I haven't played the monster in a while. It had been Glenn Strange since 1944. That being said, yes, I want Boris Karloff. And I, I feel like they own that mistake. And they went on and made Abbott and Costello meet Boris Karloff. He's such a horror icon. He does so many fun things. He shows up in oddball movies, and I love Boris Karloff, good, bad, or otherwise. For the movie, they started off with Bela Lugosi not even considering him until Lugosi's manager met with Universal and said, "He is Dracula. You owe this to Lugosi." So I really would have loved having both of them rivalries and all because they didn't necessarily get along. I want both of them on screen with uh, Lon Chaney Jr.
2: Uh, it's been told for years, uh, but the truth has been found out. Lugosi was meant to, to play the part a lot sooner than we thought. Oh. The, that was told by the manager, who was actually a very suspect fellow by the name of Don Marlowe. So, anyway, no, Lugosi was considered. And uh, thank God they hired him because if they hired anyone else, you know, it would have been a, a travesty. I love Karloff too. My two favorite icons are Lugosi and Karloff. But Karloff was kind of snotty about the movie. He's like, no, I don't want to see them making fun of my monster. I care too much. They asked him, are you going to do publicity for the film? He said, yeah, I'll do anything as long as I don't have to see it. That was, that's, that was his quote. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't either. No, he could be snarky. You have to realize this is a guy who was married like eight times. You know, everybody thinks he's gentle. Man, I know. thought
0: Elizabeth Taylor was uh, fickle on getting around.
2: That, that, <laughs> that's, that tops her number. <laughs> I'm sorry. You can't be married that many times and be a saint. I'm sorry.
1: I think Lugosi's at five, so he's... he's Oh, yeah. No,
2: he's a good one. Lugosi, forget it. Lugosi was like a walking narcissist. He was like a poster for narcissism. But as far as Karloff, they took pictures of him looking at the poster. That was the, the extent of his promotion for the movie. And I personally, with all due respect to Karloff and his fans, his snooty attitude was rewarded that he... Deign to work with Abbott and Costello in the next film, the next horror film, Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer slash Boris Karloff, but he also came back and made what I consider to be one of their worst films, was the uh, Abbott and Costello Meet Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. So good old Boris, you know, I, I guess uh, money talks. You know, in
0: all of these casts, Lenore Albert and Jane Randolph are also pretty solid in what they're doing here too. So like they get buried in here, but the ladies in here, Chad. They add to the humor quite well. And it's not just, ah, the, the hot lady likes the dopey, you know, chubby <laughs> guy or whatever.
1: They're good. Yeah, it's going to come up in my superlatives, but particularly the scenes with Lenore, Dr. Mornay, she's fantastically. She stands up for herself. And I, I love that about her personality. Yeah, she's this Black Widow type character, but she's got more to her. She has that change of heart in the middle of the movie of, hey, I don't know that I really want to go through with this, and has to be turned into a vampire to go through with an evil plan. She actually warms up to old Wilbur.
2: Yeah. How could you not? (laughs) He's so lovable. Did you notice during the scene where she gets bitten that Dracula shows up in the mirror?
1: I did. I'm very frustrated by that. That will come up, too.
0: Oh, I didn't catch that. That's a good call out there, Nick.
2: There's also she, uh, her reaction to the bite is one of the sexiest things. I mean, it, it's almost like she has an orgasm. She does look like she, yeah. Mm-hmm. She looks
0: like she enjoys it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the 66-year-old man. Oh yeah. The other things are we know that you could only kill the Wolfman with a silver bullet or a silver-tipped cane or you know whatever. Otherwise, he was immortal. You couldn't kill Dracula that way. You would have to put a stake through his heart or cut off his head or whatever it was, and then the monster he's, you'd have to dissect him. So all three monsters could have come back (laughs) for a sequel.
0: Well, isn't that what you want in a horror movie? I
1: mean, you're not supposed to actually kill them. I mean, Dracula had been straight up staked in his previous appearance. So we're, we're throwing continuity out with the
2: Universal movies. Out the window. Yeah, definitely. Well, what I always got was, what's the backstory? Why is Larry Talbot who, as far as I know, did he meet Dracula?
1: No, he had a showdown with the monster, famously, on the dam for uh, Wolfman versus Frankenstein, yeah.
2: Do you know the story about the broken ankle?
1: Yes, that scene in and of itself. It's like, man, you can't do that today, where Glenn Strange, he picks up Albert and tries to throw her out the window, and she's on a wire. And she bounces back or was in the process of falling and he goes to catch her and breaks his ankle. I do love that Lon Chaney Jr. who had played, he's actually played all of these. He's played the monster. He's played Dracula. So he puts on the makeup and he steps in and he takes over the scene and he plays the monster in this movie. He doesn't get credited, I don't think. but
2: It was a favor. He's in there. Think about this. This movie was a first also in the sense that the monsters were not made up by the great makeup guy who created all these things, Jack Pierce. Pierce had been fired because he used old-fashioned methods of creating magic, actually. But in this case, Bud Westmore took over the makeup department, and he developed very fast ways of doing the makeup. A A lot of mask work, a lot of rubber work, and stuff like that. They look good. Yeah, oh no, they look great kind of makes sense you know jack pierce took forever to right finish.
1: it only took an hour for strange and cheney to be able to get into their makeup which is amazing Chaney? considering what's done yeah cheney wow. is as well and so glenn strange says this was the most enjoyable movie he'd worked on because of the new makeup i'm with you i always are best when you take your time but for an actor being in that chair, I, Who was it? It was Jim Carrey for the Grinch, had to undergo like some form of torture training to be able to tolerate the Grinch makeup, which is just insane.
2: Hey, but I was the original genie in uh, 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 Aladdin, a musical spectacular for Disney. First attempt at (laughs) the makeup was about four hours and 20 minutes. And then they had to take it off. (laughs) It was horrible. But they eventually got it down to about an hour you know, and I'd have to come in before everyone else. And, you know, it was something. So, so I got an idea of what these poor guys had to go through and why some of them were not so happy about working with Jack Pierce.
1: Right.
0: And that was done in a day where Blueface was not politically incorrect, so.
1: <laughs> the Blue Man group is still going strong. Yeah,
0: yeah. that's right. Yeah. The Smurfs may rise up and take a stance against this, though, at some point, so. Um, that's that, quite a that's, history. I would doubt
1: anything. That's Smurfing um, unlikely, Russell.
0: <laughs> Charles Barton, director here, sounds like he has a lot to corral. Hearing the stories of having Bobby go around hitting people with seltzer water and pies and stuff like that, Abbott and Costello themselves sound hard to corral, if mm-hmm. you will. Uh, Charles Barton makes this all come together so well. He's taking both worlds and he's bridging them and he's bringing it all together so well. It, it, it makes it look easy, but when you really think about all the players involved and the, the cultures that were never before Overlapping here, I gotta give him some real credit here. Abbey and Costello's names are up there. He was a pro at working with them. It looks like he's worked with them a lot, so he was adept at doing this. But he was able to make this transformation with them to going to that next level. So it's it's really cool to watch them him as well collectively make this big pivot in their career
2: and make it all work so beautifully. He started as a, a, a an actor, assistant directed for a while. Ended up at Universal making, you know, mostly second features, you know, B-movies and stuff like that. But he was their favorite director. He and Lou became very very close friends. He made no bones about how difficult they could be. They were addicted to their card games. They would play poker. And it went on and on and on and thousands and thousands of dollars exchanged hands uh, during that time. So that was the most difficult thing.
0: They do sound like they would have gotten along with Charles Barkley. Yes. I
2: try, I try Barkley.
0: <laughs> man likes to gamble and lose money. Right?
2: Right? Or how about Pete Rose?
0: Yeah, exactly. This sounds like a good game of poker up in heaven someday. So
2: Right. <laughs> name your gambler. Oh, no. A Rose by any other name would smell so Pete.
0: I did see that really it's sad that, you know, I don't want to go down this road. This is well after this movie, but the IRS really wipes out Bud Abbott later and um and lou Lou, Lou. is lou as well yeah well i guess it's kind of a billy joel sort of situation where the guys watching their books for them took their money didn't report their taxes in there went off to mexico and i hate this story like i don't want to take i don't want to bring the buzz down but ah they they were they, they 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 were exploited and the irs came back and they took their big homes and their all the
2: use them as an example they used them as an example they got hung out to dry these guys these guys during world war ii practically killed themselves selling war bonds they sold 80 million dollars worth of war bonds do you know what that means now that's in the billions now you know what i mean these guys lose health was practically destroyed during those tours that dude had epilepsy right well, Bud had epilepsy. Oh, Blue yeah, sorry. Had rem- yeah, yeah, yeah right. Had rem- heart. So uh, they were not well men, and they really put out for the government. They really did. And how did they get repaid?
0: <laughs> well, well, we haven't talked about it. Like, th- what makes me sad about that is they're really nice dudes. They're family men. Like, you know, it's not like a oh, this happened to someone, you know, somebody like, you know, Wesley Snipes didn't think he had to pay his taxes or something like that. Like, it's not not quite like that. And the story just makes me pretty sad in general. So, like, they they deserve better better at the end of their run. Back to Charles Barton here. Chad, does it all work for you? Does it feel like it's all put together well, the pacing and all these things that they have to go through?
1: I think it works very, very well. I think it's a credit to him that he got two actors that weren't into what he was doing, and it doesn't show up on screen. So they are professionals for their craft. I'm going to give them that. But there's still a a sense you get from some movies of, hey, we don't really want to be here. We're going to phone it in a little.
0: Sean Connery and Diamonds are forever, man.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's none of that here. I don't sense any of that. There's still the joy and silliness of their comedy, and you even get very serious people like we've talked about with Legosi who's smiling a little bit and he seems to be enjoying this different take of this classic character that he's a he only gets to play twice in his life. Lon Chaney Jr. is just such a professional. Like I, I expect that from him. But everything else, I will give credit to the director of putting together a movie where none of the backstage drama ever shines through.
0: It's my understanding, but Abbott and Costello were sometimes deemed as unprofessional by other directors because of their low structure and their card playing and, you know, just they're playing gags on each other, you know, like it sounds like a writer's room from 30 Rock or something like that. Like, I mean, it just sounds like... It sounds wild, it sounds fun to be on and it sounds like it wasn't very serious.
1: Well that that stuff's okay. It's it's more of the when they leave the set or they wouldn't show up. That's the stuff that bothers me and disappoints me to hear of, hey, your lead actors aren't on set. They didn't show up today. Like
0: that,
1: that makes me a little sad.
2: You have to understand something about Lenore Aubert. Uh, I know that we 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 all agree that her performance is wonderful. She's a beautiful woman, talented. Uh, she came to Hollywood at the request of uh, Samuel Gold- Goldwyn, and uh, that was for the movie. They got me covered with Bob Hope, and she was going to play a same same kind of femme fatale, you know. Apparently, Samuel Goldwyn wanted a little more from her. Well, let's bring up the Me Too movement at this point. Oh, she refused. Good. That's why you never hear from her again.
1: That part's not good, but man,
0: this whole middle—like we've been having a joyride, and then now the IRS, and now now getting handsy, and yeah.
1: I like her so much more for that, though. That's that's great. I I'm sad it killed her career, but that's awesome of her to just say, you know what? No.
2: She had character. She had integrity. Uh, and if you watch the outtakes with her and Lou, they have a really special relationship. If you look closely, she is loving him and oh. he is flirting with her like crazy. The two of them are just having the time of their lives, which is another Abbott and Costello movie. <laughs> the other thing I was gonna say is, and the thing we're forgetting, and probably the most important thing about this film, is the fact that the monsters, except for one short joke near the beginning, the monsters are played completely straight. Yeah. This is why I think this is a better movie than say, Young Frankenstein, where everybody's winking at the camera and everybody's funny. Oh, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. I like that movie, too. No, I know you do. Know you do. Everybody does. Everybody loves that movie but me. I, I, I find it very ham-fisted, and I predicted every joke.
1: You've got a friend in me. You've, I'm here for you.
2: It's because the monsters are played straight, and the comedians have a firm foundation to work on.
0: Oh, Mel Brooks is very near and dear to my heart. And
2: I, wow. Mel, that's... I, worked, I worked for Mel for five years in The Producers.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I know mean... Mel. <laughs> <laughs> I love Young Frankenstein. But I mean, I don't think you get Young Frankenstein without this, though. No.
2: Well, I, I'm not so sure about that. But I will say that they are two completely different kinds of comedies. You have one that's kind of, you know, like I say, everybody's winking at the camera. Everybody's in on it. Everybody's funny, you know. And, and it's a spoof. Abernogus told Frankenstein is not a spoof. It's another adventure with the monsters. Only the adventure is spent by two comedians, basically.
1: Nick, can you answer this question for me? Why was this movie banned in Finland?
2: <laughs> uh, it was a misunderstanding. You know, they were saying, where do you want to send it? And somebody said, finish. And they got insulted because they thought they were rushing them. And that was that. <laughs> oh. Fair enough. Okay. How's that for an answer?
0: We can just ban movies for <laughs> petty reasons. Okay. Maybe it was publicity. See the movie that was banned in Finland. Right? Yeah. <laughs>
2: Some Finn, I'll say so out- yeah, so outrageous. Um... Even the fi- all of Finland.
1: <laughs> this sounds like a Sasha Baron Cohen skit at this point. Like one of <laughs> one of his taglines. <laughs> That's funny.
2: <laughs> oh God!
1: If I say the name Walter Lance, is that going to ruin your book? Nope. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Walter Lance. He's famous for Woody Woodpecker. That's what he does. And he's in charge of Dracula's transformation scenes here. And I think it's a little fun to get that universe in this movie as we've got Woody Wood- Woodpecker doing Dracula.
0: I'll be honest with you. This movie makes it more palatable to have the bat like, on a string like the, the 1931 bat Dracula. Because 1931 Dracula, when we watched it, I was kind of like, don't. Don't do that with a bat. Don't Oh, they show love that, that prop
1: man. That's like their thing.
0: I was yes. like, "Don't do that." No. But now, on this atmosphere like, "This is a great time for rubber bat." Sure, cartoon transformation. I'm having fun with this. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that uh that bat prop. I, I almost feel like it's uh it's their mascot for these universal movies. It just it shows up and it gets no better, and I love it. I I love how cheesy
2: in, in the 17 years since the original draft, I was going to say, this is a long they time. Didn't improve it. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Bella looks a lot older in this
0: movie than he does in the 1931 version. And But, <laughs> but it's okay.
2: Citizen. He's a senior citizen. I know. At this point.
1: But they, they did get that sweet bat in, in the eyes of Dr. Mornay. I think that was a cool effect. That love. did
2: look good. Uh, I love that. I love that whole scene with her and Lou on the bench. So round. So firm, so fully packed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a cigarette ad reference, apparently, right?
2: I was from lucky strike, lucky strike. Yeah. Lucky strike means fine to bad That's
0: bad. one of those references that didn't age well. It, uh, Chad, do you think there's anything that's not holding up here as we're talking about this? now? Because like, like I said, that's one of those things that people might not connect with as well. Is there anything that's getting lost for people now?
1: I think some of the bat transformation animation doesn't hold up as well just because we've got this... This world of CGI and well done CGI, I'm not talking about terrible nineties, early two thousands. Where where that suffers a little bit, but uh things like the invisible man, the cigarette bit, that still holds up. I I think for the most part, I the Tesla coil type lightning looks a little bit cheesy when they're they're going through really? the whole surgery prep. Yeah, I, I found it a bit distracting, to be honest, but you're tough. You're tough. It's, it's a 1948 movie. It, it gets a pass on quite a bit of this.
0: I think it's funny that like, there's a cartoon animation for the bat transforming into Dracula, but Lon Chaney Jr.'s. That Wolfman still looks great. Still looks good. So, yeah, that's still great. Like, it's that's like,
2: still impressive. That's still an impressive effect.
0: It, it almost had this funny feeling of like, well, we spent all the money on the Wolfman, so that's right. what you
2: get for Dracula. <laughs> oh, I like the bat. I love the bat transformation. To me, that's that's part of the fun. Lon Jr. was not a very stable fellow and drank and all that stuff. And he, he was having trouble with his marriage at the time. And he took over 40 sleeping pills. You have to understand, Lon Cheney Jr. was a very tra- tragic kind of guy. His father was not an easy man. It was a very weird relationship. I've heard a lot of weird rumors about Lon Cheney. One morning, he didn't wake up, and they We're had up. to take him to the hospital.
0: You mean the guy who turns into a wolf and, you know, goes back and forth, isn't stable?
2: Nice. <laughs> no, he wasn't stable. But uh, whatchamacallit, he had a really hard time during the making of this film. So it's funny, Larry, Larry Talbot is probably uh, the most uh, suffering character I've ever seen in any films. His character just suffers from the, from the moment he appears to the last frame of every film he's in. Uh, every Wolfman movie, you know, even the inner sanctum movies he did, he's always suffering
0: it, it suits the character though like I mean, you can channel that into what you're doing, so I mean that's, sure I that's mean, what that that character is appropriate to have that. I was kind of joking about it before, but I mean, that kind of comes out in that character. one fun wardrobe thing that I thought was interesting was they were talking about the the Frankenstein giant feet, and they had like actual the actor Glenn Strange had shoes in these giant oversized shoes and they had like cork stuffed in between them so they wouldn't be heavy and stuff like that. And I kind of thought that was kind of funny to imagine these big shoes weren't actually heavy.
2: Those shoes actually still exist as well as the headpiece, uh, the Frankenstein monster headpiece of a guy named, uh, oh God, I can't remember his name, George, whatever. He was a a, um, gorilla. He was a (laughs) Hollywood gorilla. Yeah, the costume and he he would appear. but anyway, he owned them for a long time, and he passed away recently. so I'm wondering who got them. They're still around.
0: I thought another fun one was when the Frankenstein monster goes down in the fire. they just had like a a head
2: That's a really bad dummy,
0: yeah, and they <laughs> they just slid it on boards like they had like two boards that they just pushed into the fire and it, it, and this framework is there and despite Frankenstein being very Frankenstein doesn't move very smoothly, I mean it doesn't look like Michael Jackson doing the moonwalk out there he, he's yeah, he's robotic. He yeah. yeah, even with that, that was one of the that was one of those moments where it's just like that effect might seem a little bit rickety, but and they splash when the Wolfman jumps to catch the bat at the end, and there's a blue. I don't know, it's not blue screen. I guess I guess they're cutting actual film exposures over top of each other. Yeah. So so there's an actual like seemingly bucket splash at a small scale that they overlay on top of the ocean, and, and it's like a and, double exposure. Yeah. And in other movies, this would seem rough. But again, because it's Abbott and Costello, I'm having fun with all of it. And warts and all are actually going to
2: work out. Will you please? Will you untie the boat? An interesting thing that I only noticed the last time I watched this movie, which was very recently, when they jump out of the boat at the very end, scared of Vincent Price, the invisible man. The stuntman. (laughs) It's not even them. Mm -hmm you can imagine i'm not getting wet are you crazy you know it's uh they didn't do it hey if it's cold i get it me too are you kidding and i'm 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 the biggest star on the lot no way get me me a stuntman get me a stuntman
1: yeah there's there's little things like when the monster's punching through what presumably would be a wooden door and you hear cloth ripping it's
2: like okay well it's also you know that lou was off his mark and actually got punched no (laughs) i didn't that's funny yeah
0: now I haven't done these other follow-up movies, of which there are many, as you mentioned. It's Abbott and Meet the Killer, Abaddon Castello Meet the Invisible Man, Abbott and Costello Meet Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. They followed up on this soundly, but I actually am a little bit sad. There's not a one-upsmanship of just Abbott and Meet Frankenstein too. I like these players coming in, and I just found myself sitting there going, like, wouldn't it be great if the Mummy and the Invisible Man and all these people also came in here? There's this movie is pretty tight. I don't really want to mess with this movie, but. If there's anything that sequels today do, you have to do everything that you did before, but then one up it and go bigger in order to make it all come together. And I thought, what would there are other monsters? You know, the Invisible Man makes a small clip there at the end, but I was starting to sit there and think maybe it's just my Mel Brooks mind starting to kick into gear of all the other opportunities that this presented that they couldn't fully take advantage of. And I haven't seen these other movies yet, so maybe maybe I get my fill if I continue down these paths. But
2: yeah. Yeah. Do you?
0: Okay, I was going to say, I, I just want more, I want all of them to overlap more. Because when in the castle, when they're, when they're actually chasing over each other, the wolfman's chasing after Dracula, is uh, tied on a gurney, and he's like being wheeled all over the place, and like, you know, like, it's so funny, and there's just mayhem. I love this. Chad, Chad and I talked about this when we covered Clue, like, I like lots of stuff happening at the same time, and it, it builds to a crescendo. It's like the movie has built to this, and it's a big payoff. And I think that this movie does finish out really well because of that, and I only found myself wanting more. So like, I've like,
2: like, give me more of that. This movie delivers on every level, on every level. Now, some people complain that old comedies have, you know, you gotta put up uh, with a plot about young lovers, or there's got to be, you know, this love song in the middle of, you know, this great comedy. Everything stops so they can sing a song. You know, that's that's old comedies are notorious for that kind of thing. In this movie, I dare you, I dare you to find something that's not perfect in this movie. I mean, other than the niggling things about the animation and stuff. They couldn't help. But you know what I'm saying? It's just a, I, I always call it a near perfect film. It's a near perfect film.
0: You' are right to say that, because I thought when we covered March Brothers content before, Matthew would not be happy with me in saying this, but there are times when, like "Night at the Opera" and other movies where it's just like, I am majorly pulled out of it, when that stuff happens. it's like, I'm not talking about Chico plays piano. I can watch that happen all day long. But I mean, I mean, there's just times when they move at a very high pace and then it pulls you out of it, and this movie is well-paced. And I'm going to credit that. Like the joke density is right, even by modern standards for me. Lou is funny, but then the situations are also funny so that it doesn't have to over rely on only just Lou Mm -hmm. being funny. Like I said, the situations are funny. Like hot women liking this guy is funny.
2: (laughs) I love love when Bud says, says, I don't know. Somehow I don't get it. And she, she looks at him and says, and somehow you never will.
0: What does he have that I don't have? A brain. It's like like the double (laughs) meaning of that is so good. The first time you watch it, you're just like, he's not that smart. But then later on.
1: I think I'll just mention our, our soundtrack and score. It's Frank Skinner, who does Son of Frankenstein and the Wolfman. So he is back for this. We're kind of bringing in that universal monsters world into this giant crossover. So that's
2: cool. Yeah, Frank Skinner's score number one is very ahead of its time, in a sense. It also was used in every following Abbott and Costello Meet Monster movie, so it lived on way beyond this this movie. So it's
0: kind of a theme song then going forward.
2: In a
1: way, (laughs) it's the Avengers theme.
0: (laughs) Without further ado, Nick, why don't you help us with some superlatives here?
2: You got it, pal. All right,
0: MVP. I think I know where this is going for you, but MVP of this of this production.
2: I would have to split this one up. I'm sorry, but Bud and Lou get MVP. They split it. And uh, yeah, so they get they get MVP. Oh, I figured you were going to go all all in for Lou. No, no, I think this one, uh, it could have been a Lou Costello movie with Bud in support. And Bud's character could have been played by anybody. Seriously, they made a bunch of movies like that. This one isn't one of them. They are both equal equally
1: important in this one all right chad i went with bella lugosi whoa he brings some prestige to this movie of hey we got dracula back this is a big deal come and see it and it'd be such a shame if the only time bella filled the dracula role was that 1931 movie so i'm so glad he got a second chance at it
0: all right I planted my flag on Lou Costello because he's a powerhouse and I, I always like the funny guy. But to your point, you really can't separate them. It's peanut butter and jelly. They go together. So,
2: right. Yeah, definitely.
0: Best supporting actor, perhaps tougher in this one.
2: Nick. This is where I go to Lugosi. Okay. It's, if somebody asked me, why should I watch this movie? I'd say two reasons. Abbott Costello and Bella Lugosi. Chad. Where are you going with this one?
1: My Jack of Ouch trades with Lon Chaney Jr. During this era, it's hard to overstate how important he is. He does everything. He's in the first crossovers with Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. He plays the monster at one point and goes to Frankenstein. He even plays Dracula. The man's a legend, and I love that he just stepped in and played the monster in this movie when he needed to. But Larry Talbot is just such a fascinating character, and the Wolfman. I love that entire franchise. I think the practical effects just, they hold up to this day. It's wonderful. So Lon Chaney Jr.
0: Great choice. My best supporting is also going to go Bella Lugosi. I'm, I'm mirroring Nick so far, but to me, I really enjoy seeing him have fun here. It, it's a character that he took so serious before, and he had done it in the stage play before he had even done it in the movie format. And it's really fun to see him loosen up and have fun with it. It reminds me a lot of when a, somebody does something serious goes on Saturday Night Live, and then does their character. They are the person that they're playing, with and they they go they, they tilt the two degrees into a world of fantasy that's really funny, and it's it, it's nice not to be like Boris Karloff where you're like where you're too serious. There's something that's very endearing to the actor for doing that, even though as you pointed out, I don't know how endearing of a person Bella might have been. Anyway, I think he's a uh, he's quite a character, but. It's nice to be able to see you cut loose and that is so serious and then make fun of yourself. So it's
2: just great. Hidden gem, Nick. I'm going to spotlight somebody that doesn't fit into, you know, uh, best supporting, but I'm going to give him, I'm going to point him out anyway. Frank Fenton as Mr. McDougall. Hmm. Frank Fenton was a, uh, uh, an actor, he was long associated with the Pasadena Playhouse. He had great credentials. He was a writer. He wrote several films. His work as Mr. McDougal in this movie, he is one of Abbott and Costello's best, very best foils. And he also sets up one of the best jokes in the movie when he's yelling at Lou and Lou says, you can't tell me what to do, I'm a union man. And I only work 16 (laughs) hours a day. And he says, a union man only works eight hours a day. He says, I belong to two unions. (laughs) It's always one of the biggest laughs in the movie when I see it in a live theater. Speaking of which, one more thing, please let me get this off my head. When I was a a comedian on the cruise ships, the crews actually the ones working like on the bottom level, were always usually from Korea. And one cruise, I brought along a videotape of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And I asked the people in charge if I could take over the movie theater that one night at midnight, after midnight. And they said, yes, you can. So I invited all of the Korean staff who does, who did not speak a word of English, and after the movie, they swarmed me. They were so happy, and they laughed through the entire film. They didn't understand what they were saying. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. The movie works. It doesn't matter what race you are, how old you are. It, it's just it was such a beautiful thing. I write about it in the book. You'll see. Anyway, I had to get that out. That's, that's wonderful.
1: wonderful. Uh, Chad, hidden gem. In a literal and figurative sense, it's absolutely Vincent Price. Another horror legend, so it's just so great to hear his voice.
0: Yep, yep. He so belonged. You know, he
1: so belonged there.
0: My head and gem's the opening animation. It is just really great. I wanted it running during the post-credits, too.
1: You're going back to your your Pink Panther days. Yeah. This This was Pink Panther for you, too. You're like,
2: that animation. The animation?
0: It's true, but I mean, I certainly think in this era... That is not a time we're having fun in the credits, in the pre title credits and stuff like that. And they did. They made it good. I mean, I like, the, I like that visual style a lot, personally.
2: Did yeah. you see the colorized version, by the way? No. No. Movie are <laughs> like, bit takes all over the world right now. But uh, the, somebody actually did a top-notch colorizing job on the opening credits, and it is absolutely gorgeous. So go on YouTube, Aben and Costello Color.
0: Okay. Yeah. Now, that's not the whole movie, is it? No. Okay. I think this movie belongs in black and white, so, yeah.
2: Oh, no, definitely. But I'm telling you, when I was a kid, I don't know about you guys. Chad, I know you're a monster fan, but when I was a kid, one of my dreams was to see these movies in color. I wanted to see what color Frankenstein's monster was. I wanted to see the color of the wolfman's fur, you know. It's like, and just as a novelty, you know, not that you should get rid of the black and white. That's preferable, you know watching those but yeah definitely look it up it's it's like a revelation it'll take your breath away it's really beautiful to your
0: point nick i mean so i'm an architect and so early modernism like in germany and stuff like that in the 20s it's a lot of it's a lot of it is very rectilinear and very simple clean and it's photographed and they always show the original photographs of black and white photographs and you just think of this as all white all of it's always all white but in reality there's a lot of splashes of intense color and things like that that just don't show up at all. No. Um, A lot of these painters and stuff like that were rubbing elbows with these architects at the time. So whether it be Kandensky or Clay or all of these really, you know, Schlemmer and things like that, Feininger, like their houses are really lively spaces. So it's funny, like today, people will sit there and go like, ah, this stuff is a bunch of boring white cubes. It's not, it's not. And it's It's funny, They like today, our books do a huge disservice by not showing you some of those photos of those things. Like they, they, they always value it. this is what it looked like at the time. This is the image that set the world on fire. Or this is like, like right. what you said. But sometimes when you see something like that in person, and I don't mean seeing a remake, I don't mean like seeing like Ford Coppola's Dracula. Don't do that. I, I mean, mm. um, I think there's something to be said for, for how cool it, it can be. So I get what you're saying. That's a tangent.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's just to me, it's like I've seen these movies maybe 8,000 times. I think. Abbott and Costello and Frankenstein may be the movie I've seen most of all in my life. Wow. Oh, no. To me, it's like there's The Godfather, Godfather 2, and Abbott and Costello and Frankenstein. Those are my three favorite films. Um, I've seen them so many times that any uh, derivation, any any anything that's a little different is welcome. You know, And it may seem I may get kicked out of the you know, motion picture society, but I really don't care because it's like this is something, it's a novelty. And why not?
0: Well, th- this one could be hard for you then. If you have to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place, who would it be? Now, normally, I go ahead and say, with a movie of this vintage, we break the rule and you don't have to put somebody in the era. But you'll you probably will be able to do so. Who would you replace, and who are you putting in their place?
2: I don't think there's a question. I don't think there's a question. If, I would want to see what Karloff would do with it if he if he were given the monster. Now, I don't think the monster had enough to do. Mm-hmm. Film until like the last 15 minutes, uh, which was kind of like House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula, right, Chad? Yes. Uh, It just brought him in for like a cameo. So I don't think there was enough for Karloff to do. So I don't think it ever would have happened. But I would kill for that alternate reality and seeing him do what he could do in the role. So that would be my choice.
0: Okay, good choice. Chad, how about you?
1: I mean, Nick took the most correct answer. For me, I love Vincent Price and his voice and it's so distinct, but I kind of want Claude Rains to be able to reprise his Invisible Man here. It'd been a while, but I think it'd be fun to bring back all the original cast of these movies. Hmm. Okay.
0: I'm recasting Charles Bradstreet as Dr. Stevens. Now, <laughs> I just don't, get what this character's doing. What is he adding? How is he setting up Abbott? How is he setting up Costello? How is he really adding to everything that's going in here? His contributions are minimal. And I'm wondering if you put another actor in with some more comedic chops. I'm not saying you have to go to a powerhouse like Harper Marks or something like that. I'm not saying you have to go that strong, but... That would
2: be interesting.
0: But bring
1: something to
0: the table. Okay.
1: I mean, he brought gasoline to the dock.
2: He did engineer the destruction of the monster.
0: I guess, but I mean, I feel like this dude just got casted because he's probably a decent looking dude at the time.
2: He was decent looking. He was under contract. What they did was, it was a very undeveloped, how can I put this, boy and girl story between the insurance investigator and the doctor. They were obviously attracted to each other. And that's that was the reason he was there, basically. Also, he was the one civilian of the people who were doing the nefarious things in the the castle he was the one civilian who didn't really know what he was doing he was just hired to help and as he's seeing what's going on more and more you know he becomes uh part of it the- i'm stunned
0: he made it out alive
2: <laughs> modern horror not the movie <laughs> i'm kidding uh he didn't do much afterwards let me go no. that way
0: no it's okay i don't really have an actor who i want to put in their shoes so i just want somebody i want somebody who can do me something something
2: yeah Bring something to the table, definitely, definitely. Yes. When when I have uh, insomnia, I play his scenes, and I I'm usually fall asleep. By there the you curtain.
1: go. I'm gonna recast you, mm-hmm. Nick. You can do it. Peter Laurie would be a lot of fun in that role.
0: Oh well, yeah. Great job, Peter Laurie makes everything better. Yeah. Yes.
2: <laughs> really, really. What are you doing? Bringing the monster alive. Right. No.
0: Oh. <laughs> Man, that's perfect. Thanks. Thank you. You completed my superlative. Now I feel like this is great. So best
2: shot. Nick. First, I'm going to give you a very short bio of the uh, director of photography, Charles Van Anger, who shot uh, his best work during the silent days for Ernst Lubitsch, and then decided, like William Bodine, who was unjustly uh, called William One-Shot Bodine, he went to England in the 1930s, and he lost all momentum in the States. So when he came back, uh, he was placed at Universal, he signed at Universal, he did mostly B-minus movies, programmers, whatever, but he brought to this movie the artistry he brought to his silent films. That's how beautiful this movie looks. That's how, how beautifully it was shot. And my favorite shot, and this is why I was talking about the animated bat, is when you cut to the matte drawing of the ca- castle on the island, and the camera's panning in as the animated bat is flying towards the window. That's my favorite shot in the movie. I think it's beautiful.
1: Well done. Okay, Chad, how about you? I like the shot where Wilbur and Chick are pushing the, it's Dracula's crate, as we find out through the House of Horrors. And you get to see all the wax figures and one continuous shot in the background. I kind of wanted to spend more time in the House of Horrors and that wax museum. Maybe Vincent Price is having some influence on me there, but that's a fun scene where I get to see all that.
0: My best shot's going to go towards a very funny moment of, lou costello in the hallway leaving the wolfman's room after he's written the note or or, or, or sorry taking the orange mm-hmm. and um and he's on his way out and he's second guessing himself and the way that the camera pans left right to kind of reinforce the wishy-washy nature that lou's undergoing himself it, it it adds tension as you mentioned but it also adds humor too so anytime the camera can actually help you get a laugh or add to something like that in the scene Good job, so I, I, that's my-
2: it's the brilliance of Charles Barton.
0: Now, best scene. It's gonna be hard for you. What's it gonna be, Nick?
2: I guess the scene that I think of most of all is when they go to visit the island to pick up Sandra to go to the party, and they suddenly find themselves through that door and then downstairs into the lower regions of the house. Uh, that stairway, that set, is just, it's as impressive as the, you know, the opening shots of Dracula. It is just gorgeous. And then what they go through when they meet the monsters and Luke, can't, <laughs> you know, he can't get the other. The revolving wall funny They Right, the revolving door that Mel Brooks uh, re-explored for his movie. Also, he calls Abbott, Abbott at one point. He gets yeah. all worked up. <laughs> you remember that, Chad? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I tell you, Abbott, it's a, I'm not, you know, he gets all worked up. But I think that's my favorite scene is they're exploring the lower levels of the castle.
0: That is a peak example of what another thing that I said was like, I didn't mention this. Another big picture thing. Costello is the, the only one who sees the scary stuff through most of the movie and towards the very end. That's funny too. I saw, I like see, Lou doesn't believe him because he just happens to walk out of the wrong time constantly. But never
2: sees it, You know, but never. It.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's always funny. And that it, it comes to a head in that scene. Like, you know, He's almost walking the one path you can walk to not see it. And he, and he happens to be on that scene.
1: Yeah. I was first introduced to that concept as, with Scooby-Doo. That's a very classic Scooby-Doo, which is clearly influenced by, by their routines. Yeah. yeah, So it's like, okay. Anyways, my best scene, it's the scene in front of the mirror with Dr. Mornay and Dracula. There's going to be a criticism at the end because it was almost great. She's standing up to him and it's this beautiful scene and it's this confrontation and there's just a tension in the air and they wisely keep Dracula out of the frame for almost all of it. But then when he goes in to bite her, they blow the scene because there's a reflection and this had been established since 1931. No reflection for Dracula. So a little bit of minus points, but otherwise I think that's just such a wonderfully acted scene.
0: Mine's got to be the chase scene between all three monsters being loose in the castle at the end. I, I I showed my cards beforehand, but all the layering that you've done up to this point is all coming together. It's the grand finale of your fireworks show, and
2: one, one of the great chases of all time. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: I I really enjoyed both of yours as well, and I uh, I I gotta give at least a runner's up to when Jane comes to meet Wilbur for the first time after Sandra mm-hmm. leaves. It just, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm laughing hard in that scene
2: that's a good scene <laughs> all
0: right you're right best wardrobe or makeup moment this is a great movie for wardrobe and makeup
2: i have to go with um, I, I i love the look of dracula in his smoking jacket his lord of the manor outfit with nice. his pale white makeup and the red lips you know what i mean it's like they he's he's definitely dracula but he's not dressed as Dracula. <laughs> His head is Dracula. But if this were an old Universal, it'd be the head of Dracula. That would be the name of it. But yeah, I love that costume. I love it. Chad, how about you? Best wardrobe or
1: makeup moment? I love the Hugh Hefner Dracula. Yeah, uh, Lon Cheney's Wolfman. It's just so timeless. They nailed it every single time. So the Wolfman makeup.
0: I'm going to pick the Wolfman makeup as well because of the transition scenes that they did that were just so good, and you know, they could tell that they had to stop the camera, apply some more makeup, start it again, stop the camera, and then some editor has to come back in and do all that. So, yeah, didn't have computers to do it for you. So, it's uh, really a m- really great work there. So, they all look good. I mean, and, and the worst wardrobe or makeup moment is Bud's weird tie. I hate those ties that just go off to the bottom and they look like somebody took scissors and cut off the bottom of your tie. The flat bottom tie. I, I, there's something unsettling about it.
2: I do like his black shirt with the white tie look. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah, for that's sure. What I like
0: Lenora Albert, She looks quite good in her all-white getup as well, with her with her raven hair. Uh, yeah. So I mean, all right, um, her white
2: vampire outfit. Yes,
0: all right. Change one thing if you could. If you have to, you have to do it. If you have to change one thing, Nick, what is it going to be?
2: Easy. You remember I said that the reason this movie works so well is the fact that the monsters are played completely serious against the comedy. The a joke in McDougal's House of Horrors, where the monster gets scared of Lou, and Dracula comes over and says, "Don't be afraid, he won't hurt you." Right? That's the joke. Uh, the monster's afraid of Lou. Okay. okay, funny joke. Doesn't belong. It doesn't belong. It, it, right away, it's it's in. Mel Brooks territory there, you know, which is a a whole other thing. So, right away, thank God it really didn't hurt establishing the monsters as being serious and a serious threat. You know, it was just a throwaway joke. I just kind of wish they threw it away.
1: Chad, change one thing. Nick hit it earlier, but I kind of feel like the monster was neglected in this film, didn't have a lot to do. So, I want more scenarios with Wilbur. I think it could have been funnier in that respect. I just, I wanted Glenn strange to have more interesting things to do than throw Lenore out the window or attempt to.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Would you rather them done the comedic throw an obvious dummy? Like where, you know, it's a dummy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but not in the blow up doll nightmare on Elm street style. Like that ruins the last shot. So yes.
0: Okay. All right. Surprisingly, I'm not going to come after Dr. Stevens on this. I already, I already laid into him a little bit. So um, <laughs> A little bit. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, I'm going to say, add a scene of Lenora Albert and Costello on a date or just some more moments of them. Her pining mm-hmm. over him or luring him in at that point, when you don't know what her angle is, is very funny. And I think you could hit this. I think you can hit this note maybe another time and still mine some serious gold out of there. It could just be a coffee or, a, you know, like, a let me grab you a soda drink and we'll go stand here next to each other. Because their interchanging reactions are very funny. And when we get to see them again, she's under a trance and she's not really herself anymore. So I think another round of that would be funny. And it could be as small as, like, adding in, like, what they did with the Invisible Man. But I just think getting the mummy in there somewhere
2: uh, would be... Okay. Would be nice but they too. Met the Mummy. They, they, they their last movie for Universal was The Mummy, and it's actually one of their better ones. I'll tell you the two you should look out for. One is The Invisible Man, it is a great movie. It's a great comedy, and the other one is Meet the Mummy. Uh, you know, there's faults. The Mummy costume is ridiculous. You can almost see the zipper, you know, behind it. But the movie itself is very funny. Their their last really funny funny movie. And they met the creature in the Black Lagoon on the Colgate Comedy Hour, the live television show they did. Okay. So they had that one encounter with the creature. It's very exciting to watch, actually.
0: You're in good grounds when I start saying, give me more of the thing that I already had. So, I mean... You know, if you can't tell, I'm tipping my cards for a good rating I'm in a little bit. So, I mean, it's, you know, these are good change one things to have happened to you. Best quote,
2: Nick. I'd have to go with the <laughs> with the most famous joke in the movie is uh, when they're changing into their costumes for the costume party. And uh, Bud has a wolf uh, mask and Lon Chaney pushes it down and says, don't wear that. You know, you have to understand that uh, every night when the moon is full. I turn into a wolf, and Lou says, "You and twenty million other guys." That's like <laughs> the joke of the movie. Whenever you mention the movie, that's the joke that comes up.
1: Chad, how about you, man? Best quote: When Dracula is pretending to be this lord of the castle, and he goes, "You young people, making the most of life while it lasts," and he just says it with this this grin. I love it.
0: I like it when he also did the, uh, oh my, costume. <laughs> yes. Oh, my
2: costume perhaps. <laughs> yeah.
0: I just got so much fun over, you know, these two ladies going back and forth over Wilbur. It's just so funny. You know, I really like how they do also discover that Wilbur, like they they discover each other at the same time, you know. You know, we've got one reading the book of the plans of reanimating Frankenstein while the Sandra Monet goes in and finds the, you know, you know, exp- you know, insurance inspector card at the same time. So I loved all of this so much, but there was a scene where you know, Larry Talbot is going back and forth with Wilbur, and he's like, "I've got a date. In fact, I've got two dates." And and Larry Talbot's like, "But you and I have a date with destiny." And he says it so seriously. And you know, throughout this movie, Bud wants to have another date. Like he was like, "Give me one of your girls." And he's like, and then Wilbur's like, "Let uh, let Chick go with Destiny."
2: Right. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. But there is a trope in Abbott and Costello movies. I know you guys aren't as familiar with the movies, but in the movies and even the television show, the trope is that Lou is appealing to pretty women. He usually ends up with a pretty girl.
0: I'm not going to lie. I could get more mileage out of that. So I'm curious to know, (laughs) Nick, you said the mummy and invisible man are next to haunted adventures They go on. If you were to turn somebody else who's less experienced with the catalog of Abbott and Costello what movie would you then turn them to pre-these horror adventures or these kind of haunted adventures?
2: Excellent question. Uh, there are some excellent uh, examples of Abbott and Costello where modern audiences would not get bored. One of them is called Who Done It, and it's a radio mystery. Uh, it takes place in a radio station, and it's a murder mystery. There are, there's no songs. There's no young lovers. There's very little plot away from bud and lou and they're at their best so that's that would be i think my first go-to did you know who what bud abbott thought their best movie was no buck privates for giving them that big boost that, that launched them you hit it right off the bat. i have a friend uh, douglas McEwen who's a writer and he was interviewing bud at bud's home but always kept the television on as he spoke to guests for some reason, uh, he thought Buck, Buck Privates was their best after Douglas said, oh yeah, Abbot and me meet Frankenstein, that's your best film. And he went, no, no, Buck Privates. So yeah, I think you're right. That was the one that they really broke through on. And it also, I think it, it might feature the most burlesque routines in that film. It just goes from one set piece to another.
0: You've got to appreciate as the person who created it for you, what it went on to do for you too. Like, that's yeah. what took them out of one genre and took them, sorry, one medium and really gave them everything that they would have. So you can't help but feel some nostalgia for that. That's why I guess that. So,
2: yeah, right. I think you're right.
0: Now, Nick, remind the listeners where can we find your book with Matthew Codium
2: as well? We were talking about things that might not play today because they're dated. Well, this is called The Annotated Abbott and Costello. We go through a movie. Uh, by movie. And we bring up stuff that you might not, not, maybe not understand because it's so dated or whatever, but we go into it, we explain it for you. And we also, you know, we really deep dive into each film and we have two different styles. So it's like getting two books in one. Matthew is very methodical and very, his research is, you know, you'll see a lot of quotes from newspaper articles and stuff like that. With me, I come from a performing uh, angle so a lot of it is opinions you're going to hear a lot of things that i notice i'm also very good after 50 years of being in the business i'm also very good at looking at them and knowing what they're thinking at times i could look at lou's eyes and know that he's not connecting closely enough to abbott to get him to go where he wants him to go and vice versa so it's very very interesting for me to watch abbott and costello not just abbott and costello any performer you look in their eyes and it's all there so yeah so
0: nick and matthew these guys take their funny business very seriously, so...
2: February 27th.
0: Yes, so if you or you know someone who knows someone who is an Abbott and Costello enthusiast, this sounds like one you're going to want to read. And
2: speaking of the 80s, John Landis wrote the uh, forward.
0: Yeah, he's connected to some great stuff, so...
2: Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, if it was only Animal House. <laughs> he thought I was...
0: Beverly Hills Cop, Clue, I mean, again, yeah, I mean, bunches of stuff, yeah. Yeah. We've come full circle. Nick, on a five-star scale, half-star intervals, if I need to offer you these things, what would you rate this movie?
2: Five stars. Six, actually.
0: Yeah, I, I saw this coming. I saw it coming from a mile <laughs> away, but that's fine. We That's why we asked this question. Chad, with less uh, clarity, where are you going to put this movie on a five-star scale?
1: I'm going to preface this with you should listen to Nick and not listen to me. Nick is the expert. I am here to be the court jester idiot. So uh, with that being said... I really like this movie. I really enjoy this movie. There are some things like, hey, there's not a single character in this movie named Frankenstein. Don't use that in the title. That annoys me. And and Dracula having a reflection that that hurts me as a horror fan because that's just, I want you to really delve into that source material. So I'm giving it a very high praise of three and a half, but still ducking because everybody else is going to hate me. So listen to Nick. Don't listen to me.
0: Wow, a reflection cost you that much? Well, wow.
1: that's those are those are minor things in the scheme of things. I really enjoy this. I do. Three and a half is a very loving score for me that I'm still ducking.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, I hand out fives and four and a halfs at a much higher clip rate than all of our other hosts here so I'm an easy please on this one so I'm going five stars I've watched it several times I've introduced it to other people I've had fun I showed it to my wife she just loved it later I've had a great time it's the kind of movie you can keep coming back to over and over again I look forward to showing it to my son as he gets a little bit older it's a Halloween thing that you just kind of have as a change of pace where you don't want to be scared but you want to have a good time and in fact this and Young Frankenstein are actually the top two that I would, like, say, funny Halloween time kind of thing. I mean, this is essential. I love comedy, and this is great comedy, and I don't look at it as a historical piece. I think that that, that treat is there for you as a film fan. All of the things that I didn't realize were there that I now appreciated on that level. All of those actors from the Universal Monsters world and the history that that brings those people under one roof it is the avengers of the universal monsters like it it mm-hmm. brings them all together so there's an enormous value in that alone so if i drop this at 56 it's in my top 100 comedies easily and so you know that's that's five-star territory for me
2: wow that's great um, there was some things i wish we could have quoted you in the book it's not too late <laughs> it's not out yet call your publisher <laughs> Presses, stop the presses <laughs> you guys this was had a great time thank you
1: chad will you help me pick a movie for next time before we head out i would love to ruin somebody else's pick <laughs>
0: <laughs> well it's winter time and it's basketball season we're going to do three basketball movies i'm ready all right option one he got game from 1998 a basketball player's father must try to convince him to go to college so he can get a Shorter sentence on his jail time. Coach Carter from 2005. Controversy surrounds a high school basketball coach, Ken Carter, as he benches the entire team for breaking their academic contract with him. And option three, Love and Basketball from 2000. Monica and Quincy love to play basketball together through many family life challenges from childhood to adulthood.
1: I've heard very good things about Coach Carter. I've been intrigued. It's been a movie on my list for a long time. So let's just cross that one off the list. I want to do Coach Carter.
0: It's a feel-good time, so get ready to feel, feel warm and fuzzy. I'm
1: ready to feel things, Russell.
0: Nick, thank you so, so much for coming on. We love having somebody with your level of knowledge and just enthusiasm on the show. It's been great, man.
2: Yeah. Thank you. I had a great time. And Chad, too. I had a great time. All <laughs> right. Okay, guys. Thank you so much. Thank I had you. a great time. And everybody out there, watch Abbott and Costello M. Frankenstein. Absolutely. Yes,
1: please do.
0: Thank you all the lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you, so subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe on YouTube. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, or follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And providing and producing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable.com. Any contributions are much appreciated, and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Chad?
1: I'm going to give the people what they want. Sensation. Horror. Shock.